Welcome to the Gator Sports Podcast presented by the Gainesville Sun. I'm back in the studio with Graham Hall and I'm Zach Albaverde. Gator Nation, hope everybody is enjoying this week. Graham, how are you doing? I'm doing well. You know, we still have Florida football this week to talk about and and basketball is getting to what we've all been waiting for, the NCAA championship coming up this weekend here. I can't be more excited, and there's no one I'd rather talk about it than all with you. And both of our teams are still alive. Right? Who, did you, who do you have in your bracket? I had Gonzaga winning. Okay, so. see, see, I've got Baylor. And I had them playing Baylor in the championship. I think so. that's such a boring pick. Right it was. Now. I said it I said it from the beginning. But it's looking, it's looking like it's an accurate one. I mean, I know there's been a lot of surprises, but there's been a lot of parity across the board. But I don't think anyone was surprised at what Gonzaga and Baylor have done really the last two years. I know we didn't get an NCAA tournament last year, but Baylor and Gonzaga were right there last year. And then they add Andrew Nemhard, Jalen Suggs, two dynamic talents really in that backcourt. Obviously, Florida fans are familiar with Nemhard and what he's doing. Um, but now they were Jalen Suggs, who had a monster night, 18 points, 10 rebounds, 8 assists, insane game here. Going to hear his name called in the July NBA draft. And, and Zach, you know, it's just a well-sound pick, but... Man, my my bracket was busted b- yeah. before these games here. Well, speaking of the draft, as you know, there's going to be a lot of Florida players that hear their name called in the NFL draft, especially after some of the numbers that got put up at Florida's Pro Day. We are definitely going to discuss that on today's episode. We will also, in the second segment, certainly get into the March Madness that involves the Florida basketball program and the departures that we've seen from Mike White's team what it means for this roster moving forward, and just what it means for the program as a whole because there's a lot of layers to peel back there. But definitely want to start with Pro Day and the good news on that front for the Florida football program because a lot of guys showed out. We definitely expected Kyle Pitts to steal the show, Kadarius Toney, who's also projected as a first-round pick to test well. But the guy who won the day was Marco Wilson. No doubt about it. For the 40 time that he put up running a 4-3-7, I think was the official time. Uh, unofficial was 4-3-4. And then basically broke the vert there with his jump that I think uh, ranked fifth best amongst cornerbacks since 1999. Just an insane uh, vertical that he had uh, tested well in, in some other um, drills as well. But certainly helped himself, Graham, and I think more importantly, put the LSU shoe toss behind him. Yeah, that was very important, and there was a great story in ESPN that we were talking about earlier that was him. You know, let me just say it. I think a lot of people thought that he wasn't apologetic about the incident. I mean, come on. The guy was incredibly remorseful immediately after the game it details how he heard from a fan in the stands hey don't go on twitter marco and had to see both of his grandmas after the game who'd made the trip and see quincy his brother who obviously knew what he was going through has experienced levels of pain and disappointment in, in football throughout his entire life and and marco had to put on a face and see his family knowing that he possibly had let's not i guess mince words here had possibly blown it all it had been a rough season for Marco Wilson throughout. A uh, pretty rough fall, I think you could say, since a very promising freshman year and the way, the way that he was a standout down there at American Heritage. You know, and then 2019 he played well opposite. Absolutely, Anderson. and even 
considered leaving after last season, thinking that he was ready, didn't really have anything left to prove at the collegiate level. And I, I think that may sound kind of jarring to Florida fans after this last year, the way that he did perform and did certainly, I think, get, I, I hate to say exposed, but his ball skills, I, I think, were criticized in, in several performances this season, notably Texas A&M, where it looked like he, he allowed nearly 300 passing yards individually. And, and that's just the rough reality of the situation. But I think people took it a little bit too far, started critiquing his athleticism, started saying that he couldn't play corner. Uh, I mean, he proved everyone wrong yesterday, Zach. Yeah, and I don't think I didn't expect him to run as as low as he did. And I'm sure he's been working really hard to get his time down. Uh, I, I knew he could be a sub four four guy, but he felt like he could be a sub four three guy. He's like, I kind of got off to a you know bad start on my first forty. He felt like he could have got four two nine on a hand time, but for him to kind of test the way that he did on his vertical jump and, and some of his other drills, I mean, don't forget when he was a recruit, that was kind of one of the reasons how he got big and kind of got his name out there was by doing the backflips. And remember he had that viral video where he caught the pass while doing the backflip. He's always had these, you know, incredible athletic traits. And certainly you would think maybe with two torn ACLs, he might've lost some of it. Certainly not. Obviously, uh, you know, he, he went out there and, and with that vertical and then with the 40 showed that, that that's certainly not any issue in, in when it comes to him. And I think a lot of it is just about getting into a good situation and I think mentally getting in a good place. I, he really talked about that after his pro day workout, um, just about getting in a good space and, and certainly learning a lot from that LSU situation. But there is no doubt for starting 36 games at Florida, starting as a true freshman, making the plays that he did make while he was with the Gators. I mean, everyone likes to pick apart the plays that he didn't make. When you play cornerback, you are going to get beat. That is the reality of life. And you can go and pick any Florida cornerback that you want that you would put on the Mount Rushmore, and there's plays that you could go back in their career that they gave up. And obviously for Marco Wilson, a lot of it was highlighted, and certainly it's 2020, everything was under a microscope. And and there's no doubt that what he did against LSU is going to follow him forever. But I think now he has shifted the conversation from that to what he can do on the field and what he can do at the next level. So kudos to him, and he was stand-up and addressing it after his pro day workout, took everybody's questions, answered them head on. And um, I definitely wish him the best of luck. And I think that there's a reason why uh, he was invited to the NFL combine. Remember as well, if they would have been one in in Indianapolis, he would have been going. So obviously he wasn't the other only guy though, Graham that cracked that four, three time and ran a sub uh, four, four. And that was uh, Kadarius Tony, who I, also didn't expect to run in that range. I mean, I thought that he could be a 4-4 guy, but he talked to me after his workout about he he, he definitely put some work in this offseason to get in that range. And he was already getting projected as a first-round pick, and a lot of people, I think, were loving him in the last month or so. But with what he did yesterday, and I think the way that he has um, probably conducted himself in interviews and answered some of the questions about his rap career and uh, just a lot of things, Dan Mullen made a great point. They were like, every time that somebody has questioned him or, or, or wondered something about him on or off the field, he's answered it and he's kind of put it to bed. And then I think by running that four three nine on Wednesday, he solidified himself as a first round pick. I do too. You know, I even at the SEC championship game, I was wondering if this is a guy who could maybe crack the third round. And I, I got to admit, I was a little bit down on him. I did think there were some fair 
question marks. One, I didn't know that he had that elite speed. We knew that he had top-notch footwork and agility. And elusiveness. And, yeah, but all those cliches, I guess you love to throw out there, but I don't think we had the measurable speed. And, and that's not really necessarily our fault. I, I don't think we're necessarily privy to all the information, and these aren't really events that guys are spending a whole lot of their year exactly really, you know, training themselves for. Let's be honest, they're running in pads. And I'm kind of in the camp that really scoffs sometimes at these low 4-4 figures, the 4-3 figures, because the game film is more important to me ultimately and what they run in pads, how quick they are out of their breaks when the helmet comes on is what ultimately does matter to me. With that said, these players are so smart to the point they realize that stuff does matter to everyone outside. The scouts showing up, Jacksonville running the pro day, that stuff does matter. If you're an offensive lineman, your pass setting does matter. All those things matter. Even though you think that you have a full body of work on film, you have to spend three, four months training for all of these drills because everything you did before may be undone if you show up and look like you don't care. And we've seen it before, Zach. You you know it. And it was only a couple of years ago where Ja'Kai Polite looked like he had a chance to be a first-round pick. And then rumors started coming out about how seriously he was taking the process. And had his some, interviews at his interviews were, 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 were horrible, let's be honest. And they weren't much better when he was with us. I mean, he didn't sound like a guy who had really loved being in the film room. And let's be honest, everyone out there who thinks that just because you're a college player who has a chance to go to the NFL, that you're suddenly going to love football and become obsessive over it and be a professor. I mean, for a lot of these guys, it is like any other job. And to find someone who cares so much day in and day out about every aspect of the process, like a lot of these guys seem to do, that stands out to people. That gets noticed, and you want guys who are going to want to show up every single day to get better, even if they're having struggles throughout their college career, like Marco Wilson has, like like TJ Slayton has, like numerous other Florida players yeah. that should hear their name called in the next month in the draft. Well, the first guy that's going to hear his name called is Kyle Pitts, and you know we're 10 minutes into this podcast, Graham, and haven't even talked about what he did at Pro Day, and it was, without a doubt, the most impressive. I mean, Wilson and Tony helped their draft stock, but I think Kyle Pitts pretty much – got himself in the conversation of maybe being in the top five. And if he is a top five pick, he'll be just the second tight end in the common draft era to go that high. And the way that he tested and performed in his pro day workout, uh, I think definitely propelled him into that conversation. Obviously running a 4.44 at six foot five, almost six foot six, 246 pounds. That was definitely eye-opening. But I think what really showed everyone why he was so incredible as a pass catcher and, and, and maybe what went to some of that catch radius that we like to hear about is that he measured in with the longest wingspan for any wide receiver or tight end in the NFL in the last 20 years. Broke DK Metcalf's record. So that right there, I think, really got the attention certainly of a lot of NFL scouts and teams and personnel that now see and can measure up 
where he checked in height and weight wise and all these other measurements with what he put on film. And it just all makes sense. And then certainly how he conducts himself and the way that you hear Mullen and Brewster rave about him off the field and the way that he is in the film room. Um, definitely going to be exciting to see what happens with Kyle Pitts. And I think whoever takes him, whether it's four five or six, seven, eight, he's not going to make it out of the top 10, but he, I think they're going to be happy with him. And as Mullen said, he's going to be able to make an impact from day one. Like Kyle Trask, Kyle Pitts is a perfect example of how one year can change your life because I still think back to it was preseason fall camp media session, end of July 2019, back when the world was a little bit more normal, when we were up there in the third floor of the Ben Hill Griffin Stadium conference room and all the players are around individual tables and all the media sessions, oh, it's so much better. I'm kind of salivating at the thought right now after all these zoom calls and social distancing and everything but we were all up there crowding around and i go up to kyle pitts and i just because i knew that there was going to be a question everyone wants to know how how fast do you run the 40 and with a smile kyle pitts looks at me and softly very soft-spoken he's come out of his shell a lot more in the last 18 months. oh yeah but soft-spoken kyle looks at me and says with a smile I ran a 4.6 this summer, 4.6, and I think I can run a 4.59. And at the table next to us, Tyree Cleveland and Josh Hammond are sitting there just, just cutting up. And they hear that and say, there's no way you ran a 4.6. This man didn't run a 4.6. No way. No chance. And, and he doesn't really need to defend himself. He didn't, he didn't defend himself, but he just said, stop. Just stop. <laughs> Maybe he knew something we didn't, but I didn't think this guy would be running anything lower than a 4.59. And, and he talked about this yesterday. Yeah. He remembers that conversation and the fact that his teammates used to you know, bust his chops about that. and It just goes to show you what these guys can do, especially in an offseason like this where they train and, and you know both he and – Kadarius, Tony, and a lot of the guys gave a lot of credit to their trainers and the time that they spent away from Gainesville um, to get ready for this pro day. So definitely kudos to um, those guys and Trevon Grimes, another one. He talked about how he read before his pro day that he was expected to run in the 4-6 range. That made him upset. That's offensive. And um, he definitely wanted to come out and prove a point, and he did. And I think, as he said, I proved those people wrong. By running, the official time was a 4.49. So he cracked, um, you know, the sub 4.5. And I, I did, I did see a lot of people. I think give him a little bit of flack for saying that he, and I was one of the people that tweeted that he had thought that he had ran in the 4.35 to 4.41 range. That was what was kind of put out there from Twitter, but. That was his comments on what he had. Those were some of the numbers that he was hearing. He later said he didn't know what his official time was. That that was just some of the numbers that he had saw on Twitter. And if you go back and look from Wednesday, there are NFL scouts that had those times for him. Um, but officially, it was in the 4-4 range, high 4-4 range. And, but still, a lot faster than people thought. He was reading 4-6. He said some even had him at a 4-7. So he definitely at... 
I think six foot five, two hundred and twenty pounds. Uh, showed how fast he is and, and some of those plays that he made, especially in that SEC championship game against Patrick Sertain, you know, scoring that 50-yard touchdown. So no doubt that he improved his draft stock and accomplished his uh, 40-time goal. I, I think Kyle Trask, he said he accomplished his 40-time goal as well. He wanted to run a sub 5.0 and he got 498, baby. It counts. Hey, hey, he did it, you know. So, But I think more importantly, he wanted to show people and it was talked about on SEC Network, actually, that he he wanted to show people that he's not a statue in the pocket, which I thought was a very unfair criticism. First of all... Lazy. First of all, stop talking about Kyle Trask like he is not Lamar Traskin. Let's get that Mm-mm. out of the way. Mm-mm. He is a willing and effective runner. Let's stop pretending like he is just a pro-style passer that just sits in the pocket he will run the ball if he has to and if it's and if he's called upon. And he showed that several times last season. I mean, I'm not trying to brag on the guy, but he did pick up first downs on third and short. He did pick up touchdowns in the red zone, and there were actually a couple plays, not a couple, a handful of plays that he broke off some nice runs for a guy that runs a 498. So, that's number 1, but number 2, something that he actually got praised from Dan Mullen was how he moves in the pocket. And he's able to slide and maneuver himself, even though he doesn't necessarily have that 40 speed. He's got enough lateral movement and quick feet in the pocket that he can make those throws and slide when he needs to. And that's what he wanted to show at his pro day workout. Uh, I'm sure he was able to do that because he was able to put that on tape. I, j- I just think he got a bad rap and, and and that perception is just there with him because he doesn't run a 4-4-4 like Justin Fields. And he's not even as much of a dual threat as a Trevor Lawrence or some of these other guys. But that's look, that's not his game. At the end of the day, he is going to sling it all over the yard. He's going to make those incredible touch passes, and he's going to be cerebral in everything that he does. Um, but I, I think a lot of people not looking at him in that top tier are going to regret it down the road. I do, I do too, absolutely. I, I think that when you look at what he brings there was even a narrative out there that his ball placement was poor I mean I'm gonna have to respectfully disagree with whoever is assessing him that way but this is why word choice matters because I I think that there is a very specific way to define Kyle Trask's speed however you want to classify it no one is saying that he is like Kadarius Tony, where he has elusive footwork and is agile and making you miss in the open field. No one has ever said that, but to call him slow, I just think is so it's just lazy. It just, it's lazy. I mean, his, his footwork in the pocket absolutely can be improved. Most quarterbacks can improve that when they're heading into the NFL draft and most are improving it throughout their NFL careers. But to sit here and say he's slow, can't run the ball. I mean, there were people ripping the coaching staff for running him on on fourth and short, third and short at times. And sometimes there were times when I even questioned it too. I'm not going to sit here and say that I thought that every Kyle Trask designed run was fantastic last year, but to say that he's not able to run the ball, it's just, it's just wrong. And I just don't necessarily like seeing that narrative out there. And then same thing with Trayvon Grimes, you know, painting him as a four, six guy. I just don't get that whatsoever. I saw some projections 
having him as a seventh round draft pick. I mean, whoever gets him there in the seventh round, if they if he falls that far, is getting an absolute steal. A former five star guy. We know that these NFL teams look at recruiting rankings. Some team is going to see that he's fallen all the way down and had a former five star rank and just take a waiver on him, take a gamble yeah. on a guy like that. But to rip him and say that he's not doesn't have a body of work that he's going to run in the four six. I, I just. We saw what these wide receivers did the year before. We saw what we he saw did. Look at the plays did. he made against Georgia. His hands. Vanderbilt, the, those touchdown grabs. Come on, man. He is, his, his ability to catch the ball at the high point in traffic. He's not a guy who is going to freeze on his routes or, or run the wrong route. I mean, he is a professional already and understands that. I mean, he's ready to go get that bag. Let's be honest. And one more thing I got to say, because I couldn't help but think it, but when Urban Meyer and Steve Spurrier were in there, they had to be marveling at the IPF. Because one of the few things that we don't mention about the indoor practice facility is that at the end of the year, they're going to have pro day in there. And that's going to, I think, lead to some, it's more comfortable environment, first off. So you're not sweating your butt off yeah. in the sun or dealing with any type of the rainy conditions Great at Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. You look at USF right now, it's raining right now at USF's Pro Day. If you were having your Pro Day in Gainesville outside right now, you'd be freezing your butt off right now like we were walking in here. And they've had rainy Pro Days before in Gainesville. And it's had to be rescheduled. Or you've seen no, guys Ronald, not... Yeah. Ronald Powell, his, his uh, Pro Day was uh, poured. And, and that hurts guys' abilities. They have to schedule private workouts with teams who may have already had interest in them later, or pro day has to be moved to a later day. And when you have head coaches, Flores coming into town, Urban Meyer coming into town, you can't just reorganize that on a whim. I, I mean, if, it, if the weather, the Florida weather, hurts your pro day, I mean, that's pretty much it. So yeah. for these guys to have a comfortable environment, for a, a one they're used to practicing in all the time, to have... It climate controlled as well, running on the surface that they spend every single day on. I, I thought that that really helped just the comfortability of a lot of these guys and, and helped them make some money there with some of these really quick times. Yeah, no doubt. One more thing on Trevon Grimes, too. I just think from a production standpoint is another reason that maybe he's projected where he might be in terms of how what his numbers stack up against some of the other receivers in this draft. But I just think for him – and I'm sure a lot of NFL clubs will look and realize this. I mean, come on. Look look who he was playing with. He had two first-rounders with him in the receiving corp. So I, I think in any other situation where you're not next to a generational tight end and a very, very uh, electric slot receiver, he's probably catching a lot more balls and having a lot more production. So I, I don't think that's any reflection of what his ability and talent is. And NFL teams know that he will not be a late-round pick. I definitely think he made himself some money. And a total of 16 guys worked out from the 2020 team at Pro Day. There were some other former players there as well, including Martez Ivy, and a lot of former Gators in attendance too. Uh, you know, you saw LaMichael P. Ryan there, Tease Tabor, a lot of guys. David uh, Sharp in the Larry Bird jersey. Yep, and then also some former Florida coaches. Graham mentioned Urban Meyer, but you also had Brian Johnson in attendance. Doug Nussmeyer in attendance, so two former Florida offensive coordinators. Actually, three, right? Dan Mola was in the building as well. So, hey, four. Steve Spurrier was in the building. He was the offensive coordinator Hard to keep track. back in the day. So, uh, obviously, it was a 
a special day in Gainesville, I think, for them to have that type of pro day, 31 out of 32 NFL teams, four head coaches, and that many prospects that clubs were looking at. I definitely think that's the kind of pro day that you want to have in, in Gainesville. And, you know, some of the other guys that are certainly, I think, have a chance to get drafted. Sean Davis, he had a uh, unfortunate situation where he fell uh, on his 40, but he had put up some really nice numbers he tested well in the vert uh, and in the 10-yard split and he's a guy that uh, a lot of teams got to see at the Reese Senior Bowl so he, he's I think a chance for him to maybe get taken and and also a, a guy like Stone Forsythe I, I think that he definitely uh, showed what he could do last season he was one of the best I think pass protecting left tackles in the country and then certainly protecting Kyle Trask blindside that's going to stand out to a lot of NFL teams and at at the pro day yesterday he showed off that he had slimmed down a little bit and I think dropped uh, around I think almost 15 pounds so uh, I I definitely think that he's got a chance to maybe uh, either get drafted or definitely have an NFL career uh, along with TJ Slayton I mean a lot of guys that, that I think could hear their names called or or get some opportunities and get signed but we're going to take this first break when we come back on the other side we'll uh, switch the conversation to hoops talk about the departures from the program and where the Gators go next we'll be right back after this break Sports Podcast, Zach Albaverde and Graham Hall here. And uh, who knows, Graham, we might be asked to suit up for the Florida basketball team next year and, and use some of that eligibility because right now, man, this roster is definitely low on numbers after some of the defections and departures that they've had. Uh, now down five guys, including four transfers, and then obviously Trey Mann uh, entering the NBA draft. And, and look, I mean, no way that you can slice it up. This is not what you want, right? This is not where you want your program to be, your roster to be, where you're having this much turnover and that you're having some guys that either just don't pan out or don't develop or just don't end up fitting in. However, you know, you want to slice it up. Um, this is not where you want to be, and it's going to definitely put Mike White and the staff in a really tough situation trying to figure out what type of numbers and depth that they can have for next season. I mean, yeah, you know, I was joking about you and I, Graham, but I mean, who knows? Maybe they'll they might ask Anthony Richardson to pull a CI and come over and play for the Hoops team. I, I think that he could do it. Um, I don't know if Dan Mullen would be happy about that, but uh, I mean, we're joking, but I, I don't think that this is funny for a lot of Florida basketball fans. I want to get your take on all this and some of these departures that we've seen were expected. I think some were not. Before I get into it, I I think that for one, I this this is expected. In a, in a part, I think that for a lot of people, many people, even into that first week in March, were thinking that Trey Mann had work left to do here in Gainesville. And I attempted as much as I possibly could without spelling it out for everyone and really spoiling his announcement. And granted, he really did boost his stock in the NCAA tournament and in the SEC tournament against Tennessee. Wow, that second half. But I tried to tell everyone that this is a guy whose game was accelerating rapidly and had a skill set specifically suited for what the NBA was looking for. You tried, Grant. I, I tried. I, I tried, and I, I think that even there were a lot of people who realized it, yes, in the NCAA tournament, but some people were still shocked. But this is what you want. You want your players to come in and develop at a rate where before they turn 20, 21 years old, 
they have a chance to be professionals. That's that's obvious. That's how you become elite on the recruiting trail and a championship level program. So let's get it out of the way. That's a great thing for Florida and really goes against the narrative that I, I hear so often that Mike White doesn't develop talent at, at Florida, which is, uh, I'm not going to get into that. That's just pretty ludicrous. We can point to Noah Locke, the second one transferring out of the program, not the first one into the transfer portal, but let's be honest, I think the most notable, uh, you look at what he did, cracked the starting lineup as a freshman just seven games into his UF career and really never gave that spot up despite, and I try to tell people this as well, not to gloat or anything, but he really dealt with a whole lot of injuries in Gainesville. He I wouldn't talk about them too too much, just of how Noah is, but also him talking about his injuries and what he was dealing with, his ailments, would have limited his effectiveness, which would have kept him from competing and doing what he loves. So he stayed silent. While everyone in the background knew that this is a guy who could hardly practice at times, had to recover, went through a whole lot of pain, just to be able to play. And I don't know if he was ever fully appreciated by the fan base for what he gave. Yes, I don't think he was a great match with Andrew Nemhard last year, but this offense, he was a great third, fourth scoring option for this team. And just Especially guy, if they would have had Keontae Jackson. Absolutely. I mean, he... <sighs> The pick and pop, I mean, he, he does He would have got a lot everything. of open looks from three if Keontae was playing. The way that Keontae was being doubled on the baseline, you had Noah Locke, the best transition three-point shooter in college basketball on your team, and one of the best at running the dribble drive offense, and, and one of the best two-way players in college basketball, and Keontae Johnson. And then with Trey Mann and Colin Castleton, I try and tell people all the time, this team really could have been special with a healthy Keontae for his, uh, the entire season and even in a normal season, one that wasn't affected by the pandemic and, and all these other issues that this team faced. I was surprised by Locke. I mean, he's the one of the four that I, I, I like at least, and maybe you expected it, but I just think at that point in that guy's career for what he had done at UF, like that's someone that you don't want to see walking out of the door. You don't want to see him walking like, out of the door. Last week though, when we did the pod, I, we were talking about transfer targets and I mentioned Noah Locke, and I didn't want to tell people that I was saying, hey, listen, you know, this guy may leave, and a bunch of programs are going to call him and say, hey, we want you to come do exactly what you just did in our offense, and you're going to be loved for it. I think that if I had said that to people, people would have told me how wrong I was. But that was a guy that was going to be courted by every other program just because of what he could have added to every single offense. And there's, let's be honest, a lot of them that are going to be better next season than Florida's was, or or is going to be next season. It's looking like right now. So Noah Locke is a guy that was desirable. So as much as it may look like he's leaving the program, there's a programs who may have a higher ceiling next year who want him to play a larger role. That's just the reality of the situation. Too often we think that a guy can only do such and such and thing, such and such and thing, and that they can't do anything else because they're playing a role. Don't get it mistaken. Noah Locke, while he is not a lethal finisher at the rim and not the most aggressive guy in the lane, he has a good offensive skill set, can bring the ball up the court, can run multiple offenses, and is extremely intelligent and can shoot it from 30 feet plus. There's a lot of teams 
that want what he brings to the table. And if you have a better opportunity awaiting you elsewhere, I'm the kind of person who says, go out there and take it. And that's something that coaches like Mike White and Billy Donovan and every coach who's had success at the division one level says all the time, if you can have a better opportunity, whether it's professional or out of here, go take it. You have to look out for yourself. People too often, forget that sports is a business you look at jj reddick right now not to go on a little tangent here but i mean a guy who 30 years into basketball career you know 32 years old here he's probably older than that thought that he would have control over the offseason guiding his future and they did what was right for them you never know when someone may do what's right for them that hurts you and you have to do what's right for you in the moment more often than not and i think noah Locke is extremely evident of that my last point Transfers are not like recruiting. Yes, you have to recruit players to come to you, but there's no limit outside of scholarship limits on how many transfers you can send out a year and how many you can bring in. I know that in college football, we are used to looking at it through the recruiting signing class cycle. But But a lot of programs in the SEC are having multiple transfers right now. Absolutely. You look at the top two teams in the SEC last year. Arkansas had 10 first-year players this year. Yes, some of them were sit-out transfers, but just like Florida's, Anthony DeRuji, Tyree Appleby, those guys sat out last year. And then not only did Arkansas have four of those guys, but they added in six first-year players. Yeah, they had some freshmen, but they had mostly transfers coming in. Then you look at Alabama, what they did with Nate Oates. That was a backcourt that was going to be relying on John Petty Jr. And who they brought in, they had Javon Quinterly sit out, who... Everyone likes to talk and and got in my mentions on Twitter about Villanova and the winning culture there. Well, Alabama got partly as far as they did from taking Javon Quinterly, a guy who looked like a little bit of a failure in his first year at Villanova, and got him to develop at Alabama and be a critical guy off the bench for the Crimson Tide there. Transfers are the way of college basketball right now. Today, right before we came in here, Zach, Roy Williams retired at UNC. And he cited, according to Jeff Goodman, the changing landscape of college basketball. Not only has been there been no Division I recruiting last year with no visits due to the pandemic, but everyone is free to come and go as much as they want. Your, your players who you spend all this time investing in recruiting can leave after a year, like I said, if they have a better opportunity. And you have to recruit year in and year out. That's much more difficult for college basketball coaches, especially with all these uncertainties. We just don't know what the future is like. And as long as Florida finds some additions to make up for the attrition, they lost guys that, aside from Noah Locke, combined for less than 10 points per game this season. As long as their additions can make up for the attrition, they're going to be all right. Florida fans just have to wait it out. Now, I do want to ask you, though, when you look at the recruiting classes since that first one, just the the turnover you can't ignore. I mean, there's just been not you haven't basically gotten your the return in your investment of all the guys that you took time out to recruit and sign. It, it just has not panned out. And and I know that you mentioned that this is the way college basketball has trended, and a lot of teams and programs are going through this. How do you think that Scott Strickland feels about this? Not necessarily in terms of judging Mike White or necessarily about how he feels about the job that he's done, but specifically about the roster turnover and after this season, guys leaving. What do you think his reaction is to that? Is he Does he just chalk it up to 
this is where we're at, this is where college basketball is at, or, or do you think that this is one of the things that maybe does concern him, whereas some of the other things that Mike White gets criticized for doesn't necessarily upset Strickland as much? Without knowing exactly how sure, yeah, we're speculating. Just speculating. speculating. I think that because that's what fans are saying. That fans are like, "How does Strickland not see all these guys walking out of the door and, and not get upset by this?" And I, you know, I, I wonder how he does feel about it. I do think that he, like many athletic directors, is a little bit, I guess, dismayed, upset at how prolific the transfer portal is right now. I think that that is of greater concern to Scott Strickland than I, I hate to say what's going on with the basketball program, but I think that Florida's basketball program has been not as benefited by the transfer portal as other programs. And I think that has rubbed many programs, not just Florida the wrong way because they have prided themselves many programs on attempting to do the right thing on the recruiting trail, building natural relationships, spending countless hours, sometimes in a hotel, on the road, driving to meet kids when they're 13, 14, 15 years old. And I think a lot of the reasons why they're dismayed at the transfer portal is because it really is exposing how much of a business it is. You could fool yourself for a long time into thinking that these were all natural relationships and you have a personal relationship with a coach and they want what's best for you. So you want to play for that program or that there was a loyalty when you found a player early and offered him when he didn't have any offers. And then another program comes in and poaches you. There's no loyalty anymore. And I think that Scott Strickland is more alarmed by that than Florida's failures. With that said, I do think that he understands the pressure that's here, the graduation rate. What about the Keontae Johnson effect? I mean, I don't think Noah Locke would be leaving right now if Keontae Johnson was for sure playing next season or, I, or, or, have ne- or had never even been through that situation. I, you know, I, I hated to kind of speculate on, on that, but it absolutely begs the question, would Noah Locke be transferring if he knew that Keontae Johnson was returning to Florida next year. Or would year. some of these other guys have left either? Yeah. If they, if they knew that if, they had something to come back to. If they knew that, you know, Tyree Appleby was running the point next year and they were getting Colin Castleton back and Keontae Johnson was going to return and you get a, a Colin Castleton that has an, a full year in the program and is leading the way and then you can be- boost your bench with some transfers. I mean, I think that absolutely Noah Locke would be more inclined to finish what he started at Florida. But again, we don't know the future of Keontae Johnson, what's going to happen. But I think this is a very good tell that that era of Florida basketball is over. The Those Whatever classes. remained yeah. of that class, I believe, what, the 2018 class? Yeah, Nemhard, Locke, and, uh, of, and then you got Keontae as well. I mean, those guys, I, I think, I, I hate to use the word underappreciated again, but we never really got to see all three of them in their prime together. Noah was injured. Andrew, I think never blossomed. I I think that he, I think he was underutilized, poorly utilized, uh, but he really, really, I think developed his game. um, It was also a bad fit. Incredibly. Yeah. That's, that's the biggest thing, what they were trying to do. His, his skill set was not suited well for what Keontae and what Noah brought to the table. So I, 
I can understand why Scott Strickland would be alarmed, but this next year, when we have some normalcy, when hopefully, knock on wood, that recruiting ban is going to be lifted and all these coaches can get back to, and maybe we'll see some NCAA regulation with the NIL, some things are going to change here in the next few months. I think you'll have a much better determination at this point next year because I do think this is kind of a free pass for a lot of teams, Florida included. I want to wrap it up with two things. Obviously, we mentioned the the number of of guys that they left. I think it's been like 12 transfers, right, in in the last uh, several classes that they've now had. But there's also been the conversation about the graduation and and Florida – where they stand with graduating players from their basketball program. I know Chris Harry wrote a piece that clarified that for folks. Um, I just wanted to get your take on that and where you think the Gators go from here also in terms of the transfer portal, some of the guys that are out there that have Florida in the mix. That's such a difficult situation for me because I can understand both sides. Obviously, you are, I guess this goes away from the whole sports or a business thing but ultimately these are academic institutions who love to think that hey graduating kids and getting that degree is the most important but on the flip side of that you often talk to a fan and and they'll use the criticism well we haven't had any guys go to the league or we haven't had any guys turn pro so and so this long more often than not in the nba draft the guys drafted are not seniors So if you're complaining about the graduation rate, I'm interested what Kentucky's graduation rate. The joke up there in Lexington is, oh man, they actually had a senior day this year. I mean, you cannot have everything. Either you are a program that gets guys like Trey Mann, who after two years are ready to go. And granted, yeah, he has been the only one in the Mike White era. But last year, Keontae Johnson was a, a second round pick potentially before he decided to return to Florida and come back. I mean, that's back-to-back years where you should have had a guy taken in the NBA draft among 60 picks of of 10,000 college basketball players out there. But in addition to that, the notion that they haven't graduated. And that's the other side. You've had guys in the last two years that have grad transferred out of the program, as as Chris Harry at FloridaGators.com reminded everyone. Gorjot Gak was a grad transfer out of the program. I mean, Keith Stone graduated in three years. Before that, Kavarius Hayes, I know that he was a Billy Donovan signee, but you you look at what he did when he got to this this program in, in Mike White's first year. I mean, he was all SEC in his final year as a senior. So to say that that guy did not blossom, didn't graduate. I I mean, I understand. And, and, you know, I I do side with Chris on that last notion. Everyone says, oh, don't don't compare to Billy. Don't compare to Billy. Well, when Mike White got to Gainesville, he let everyone out of their NLI, out of of their signed letter of intent. I mean, he said to all those guys, come on, Alan, listen, if you don't want to play for me you don't have to you can go wherever else you want i know it's late in the process but someone else will take you justin leon i mean justin leon the same way a guy who did graduate at florida i mean you look around and all three of those guys signed with florida and then kavon allen graduated jalen hudson came in and graduated i just think it's an unfair nitpick narrative and and this time last year people were talking about how florida only had seven scholarship players returning to to gainesville and the associated press wrote about that as well so i just don't know why we keep falling for these same mistakes of criticizing the roster 
in the upheaval period. And Florida has been able to add guys from the transfer portal, and they, they are already in the mix for some names right now to make up for these roster spots. Do you want them to add a bunch of seniors that are going to come in here and just graduate to boost the graduation rate and aren't going to play too much or guys with potential to be here for a few years? And you look at, as you mentioned, some of the guys are still in the mix for. C.J. Felder at Boston College, a guy who averaged, what, 18-7 and seven last year as a chance to come here. Uh, you look at Brandon McKissick at, at a University of uh, Missouri, Kansas City, a guy from a mid-major who can do it all, a very, very solid defender, would come in and, and boost this program right away, which, no offense to Quez Glover, I think you could make an argument that he'd be a better fit, a more polished player right away. So that is what the transfer portal is used for. The Gators are scheduling virtual meetings and Zoom interviews with players every single day while also trying to find Jordan Mincy's replacement here, who, who from what I'm hearing is going to be an offensive-minded assistant coach to uh, continue fine-tuning the team's offensive scheme moving into next season. So this is the critical time where you cannot add anyone if there's no space. So you got to create that space a little bit quickly, and, and that's what you've seen the last week. Yeah, and we've seen, obviously, the last week a, a lot of changes for Florida baseball in terms of their lineup. Ooh. Kevin O'Sullivan switching it up, sitting Bold. his uh, starting pitchers down, and obviously trying to uh, find a way to bounce back from that sweep at South Carolina. They're at home this weekend against Ole Miss. I'll be there to uh, cover this uh, opener on Thursday night and uh, see how the Gators try to definitely find a way to kind of regroup after what was a really tough trip to Columbia, and then definitely a big uh, weekend for gymnastics, Graham. Yeah, Trinity Thomas still really not back to full strength, but this is the critical time, as you mentioned, Zach, for Florida gymnastics. The number one overall seed in the country heads to Athens, Georgia, this weekend for the Athens Regional. They compete Friday night in that session two. Top two teams move on to Saturday's regional final for a shot in the NCAA championships. You know, Zach, the UF gymnastics team has only missed the NCAA championships twice in the program's 39-year history. Good Lord. I mean, talk about a little bit of pressure. The last time was pretty recent. It was two years ago, so pretty high expectations here in Gainesville, but they're going to need Trinity Thomas back to do it based on that SEC meet last weekend where Florida finished third out of four. If they can get Thomas back, I mean, this team, as good as they were this season, they should be the championship favorite. Well, as good as we were on our Zoom calls, Graham, I think it's a lot better when I'm here in studio. I was glad to be back, glad my throat is cleared up, and uh, definitely had a good time talking about Pro Day and where things stand right now with this Florida basketball program. Graham, appreciate your time and perspective. As always, we'll be back next week with another episode for Graham Hall. I'm Zach Alpaverde. No one.